Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Mike Robbins. He's the author of Bring Your Whole Self to Work, and his new book is We're All in This Together, Creating a Team Culture of High Performance, Trust, and Belonging. And in this conversation, we're talking about something mainly about being your authentic self at work, leaning into your strengths. But not only that, how to do that with other people. One of the things that I know from my experience that as growing up in college, even in high school, we do group projects, but it was never necessarily about specifically learning to work in a team and how to best work in a team. In fact, that's something that I've had to learn to do with a lot of friction remotely as well as in person. And Mike and I talk about the four pillars of how to do that well. So if that's interesting to you, you're going to love this conversation with Mike Robbins. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Mike Robbins. Mike, welcome to the show. Eric, thanks for having me, man. It's an honor. I'm excited to be here. You're here to talk about, or we're here to talk about, I should say, uh, (laughs) your new book, We're All In This Together, Creating a Team Culture of High Performance, Trust, and Belonging. But I want to skip back one second and say, you actually had a previous book called Bring Your Whole Self to Work. And before we get into that, because I think it connects, then I think you probably think so as well. Could you mm-hmm. give a quick like summary on what bringing your whole self to work even means? <laughs> well, it changes all the, all the time, especially <laughs> these days, right? I mean, what, you know, what's interesting. So the book, We're All in This Together, that just came out is kind of like, I know it's weird to say like a sequel because it's not like a novel, but it's sort of a follow up to bring your whole self to work. And, you know, Eric, I've had my consulting business for almost two decades now. And a big focus of the work that I do, especially when I'm talking to teams and leaders in organizations of all different sizes, but talking to people professionally, is how do we show up authentically? How do we bring all of who we are, not just the polished professional version of ourselves 
to work because what I've seen over 20 years of working with people and with teams and organizations is that when you create an environment where people feel safe enough that they can actually fully show up, they're going to bring all of their creativity and innovation and passion and everything that's necessary for the job if you will, so that they can be most successful, but so can the team. And when I wrote Bring Your Whole Self to Work, I kind of broke it down into five different principles, you know, authenticity and appreciation and growth mindset and emotional intelligence. And then the fifth principle was about how do you really create a team where people can bring their whole selves to work? And when I got done with that book and writing about that and researching that, what became abundantly clear to me was, oh, the next conversation, the next book to is to sort of double click on the team aspect of this and really go deeper into that. So we're all in this together is kind of a follow-up about how do you really create that team culture where people can perform and trust each other and belong and bring your whole self to work is more about how do I as an individual and maybe me as a manager or leader of people, how can I have the courage to actually show up and really be myself? You know, and part of what I've been seeing of the many aspects of this interesting and challenging time that we're in in the pandemic is that it's forcing us. We're now sort of zooming and Skyping into people's living rooms and bedrooms and kitchens and right. And <laughs> as weird as it is, we're not actually going to work physically, a lot of us, because we can't. But the necessity for us to really integrate our whole lives, not just our professional selves, which is so much I know what your podcast and your work is all about, is fundamental. Because the truth is, this wasn't even the case a year ago, and it's definitely not the case now. There's not like a clock in at nine. And I show up at work and do my job and then I clock out at five and I go home and I, you know, can be my regular real self. It's like all for better or worse sort of integrated all together. And I think that's even ex been exacerbated in a lot of ways in the last few months. Yeah. So, for example, right before we hit record, I was down the hall just saying, hey, OK, just as a reminder, I'm about to <laughs> start recording now. So you can exactly. keep, you can. Yeah, you can keep playing your video games and, you know, <laughs> but uh and you don't have to be quiet, but you don't, right. you need to not be loud. <laughs> That's for sure. Yes. So how, how old are your kids? Uh, I've got a teenage daughter. She's going to be 16 soon. And my son is, uh, why is it taking me forever to take, to get to that number? Uh, no, he's, he's, he'll be nine soon. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah. you got the spectrum boy. Kind of got a spectrum. Two, yeah. We have two, two girls who are 14 and 11. So, you know, it's been, I mean, it's always interesting and exciting and challenging as a parent, but I think again, the last few months, for a lot of us, if we have children of whatever age is managing, oh my goodness, like maybe I'm used to working from home or working remotely as some of us are. I'm not used to having my kids here or my spouse here and people and school happening virtually and all the other factors of it, which, whoa, if we weren't already bringing our whole selves to work or trying to integrate our life and our work in some way, we're now being forced to do it, which is both, you know, more challenging and more necessary these days. Yeah, in a sense, you're almost, uh, you know, up till a while ago, th thought of, or especially recently, uh, you know, divorcing some self or some sense of yourself or part of yourself yeah. from being what is brought to work. In other words, it's, uh, you know, yep. it's it's warts and all. But yep. lean into that in a sense is part of your warts is your creativity and and obviously it's you're not all warts you've got strengths as well so sure. yeah well well and along those lines I think one of the challenges I have found over the years and again I've had my business for almost twenty years and I love my work and I imagine you and, and a lot of a lot of people listening can relate to this when we love what we do there's I've often found it challenging like how can I be present 
in the work while I'm doing the work because I also love my family and I love my life that's not related to my work, right? So like in a few months back, what I spent a lot of time doing was traveling and speaking at events and things. And one of the challenges from the time our girls were really young, even to now is, can I be fully present and engaged in what I'm doing while I'm doing it instead of hanging out with my family, thinking about my business and all the work because it's super important and I run my own business and it's challenging and stressful at times or out doing the work and then feeling guilty. Oh, I'm out here and I should be right. That's mm. been diff- different over the last few months, but but more challenging in different ways, because like you, it's like you have to run down the hall and say, hold on a second, I'm about to do this thing. Or, you know, <laughs> I'm in my office recording podcasts or doing virtual presentations. And it's like I can't have everybody texting me and calling me and barging into the room because it's like, hey, imagine your dad is actually like on stage talking to people. You wouldn't barge on stage and be like, hey, dad, where'd you hide the this or where's that? You know, so again, trying to figure out how to navigate that in a way that isn't simply just can we compartmentalize and get stuff done, but now our lives and our work and everything is all intermixed in the same environment, which, you know, is is a whole new set of challenges, I think, for a lot of us, even if we've been sort of trying to balance that. And as you talk about, live sort of beyond simply just our to-do list, you know, there's a whole other layer to it now all of a sudden. Yeah, and, and there's this whole kind of individualistic struggle aspect to it, but then again, especially when you're trying to bring your whole self to work, which in a sense feels like a it's it's not only a, a almost potentially a command bring your bring your whole self to work, <laughs> but it's also individualized where it's like no me as myself I bring my whole self to work. But then again, that fifth principle plays into uh, the new book where yes. it's not just about you; it's about right. the messiness of well I'm doing this and you're doing this and. Our other teammates, they're doing this as well. And right. how do we all bring our whole selves to work, not just for the benefit of my own work being better or more rewarding, et cetera, but for all of us to see that benefit yes. mutually, collaboratively. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing that's so important about that, I mean, the tricky part is that there's so many paradoxes in this that I've seen over the years in my work and in my research. And we all know this from experience, right? Because the truth of the matter is, like you're saying, if I can bring my whole self to work and you can bring your whole self to work and we work together, we know at some level, if I have the freedom to do that, if I'm going to probably perform better, I'm going to feel more relaxed. I'm going to be more creative. I'm going to take more risks. I'm going to right. However, it's not simply just about me because I have to also be mindful of you and everybody else on the team. Cause the reality is as hard as it is for us to remember this, not everybody's like us, right? Like not everybody operates the same way. Not everybody's not everyone reacts to the same set of stresses and challenges and goals and projects and everything the same way, which is what makes teamwork super important and really challenging. And so again, it then becomes that integration of, wait a second, it's not simply just about each and every one of us showing up fully. That's a big part of it, but it's about how does the team dynamic exist so that we can do that. And, you know, again, it's a bit of a, a paradox or it's a bit of a dance, if you will, um, especially working, you know, in this environment, not only just when we're all working from home, but just in a global diverse environment where people are just really different. You know, you and I both are Americans, but we live in different parts of the country and not only time zone wise, but sort of mentality wise and perspective and all these things like things are very different in Indiana than they are in California. Just as an example, it's not a bad thing. It's just if I'm not very familiar with what it's like in your world and you're not very familiar with what it's like in my world, 
we're going to have to share some of that with each other so that we can kind of understand each other's worlds a little bit better. Or even if it's not about different places that we live, let's just say you're a salesperson and I'm an engineer and we have to work on something or even in a small business, it's like, okay, I focus on this creative aspect of the business. This other person focuses on this practical and technical aspect of the business. This other person focuses on this financial or operational aspect of the business. Well, we all have really different skill sets and different lenses by which we look at the business. How are we all going to work together so that we can produce the best result and whatever product or service we're creating have the impact we want it to have out in the world? Like that's not that easy to do. No, not at all. And for the, I was thinking about this and and it kind of occurred to me that growing up and uh, my first experience working in a team was in college. Now, nowadays, uh, and and I've experienced this with my daughter, she has had uh, in high school and even junior high group assignments or projects where they have a report and a presentation for a group. My first experience with that was in college. And I remember one of the things that I was told by uh, a professor was, this isn't just about the material. This is also about learning how to work in a team. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's life. I get it. But at the same time, it's like, you know, how do you balance, uh, you know, that person got, I mean, it, it's the, it's the, the reality. It's the practicality of, well, that person gets whatever grade they get, regardless of how much they put in, uh, True. you know, that kind of a thing. And, and having to talk my daughter through that as well, when oh. she's like years younger than I was at that time when I right. would have first experienced it, you know? Well, well, and the truth is, it's. I'm glad you brought that up because I often will say when we're talking about, you know, we think about teamwork as this positive thing, right? Hey, teamwork's good and it's important. And we all know that it is in whatever environment we're in. Again, within a family, within a community, within a, you know, religious community, within a, obviously a work team, a sports team. However, it's not that easy to do. And we don't get a ton of really helpful training because mostly like you and I, right, were raised with, and I often say this as a joke, what's teamwork called when you're in school? cheating, right? It's like we don't because it's really not like you do your own work. And then every now and again, and, and education is doing a better job with your kids in mind, introducing the idea of collaboration and team group projects at a younger age, which I actually think is a really helpful and healthy thing. However, as you have to talk to your daughter about, I do the same with my, especially my older daughter, my 14 year old. But anyone who ever even, even if you played team sports and even if you, your kids do it now, what you notice is and even in a team sport, it's very individualized, particularly in our Western American culture. It's yes. like, well, are you going to start? Are you going to are you going to be one of the stars of the team? Are you going to get a scholarship? It's all of a sudden like, wait a second. Hold on. Like the documentary that a lot of us just watched wasn't about the Chicago Bulls, really. It was about Michael Jordan because he was the star of the team. Right. And it's like, oh, wait a second. We live in this world where even team sports are very individually focused. And so the challenge then becomes, and we've all been part of teams or groups where we can somehow figure out how to crack that code and get past everyone's individual ambitions and egos and desires to be successful themselves, where something greater sort of takes over. And it's that magical thing. And I don't mean to sound all weird and woo-woo about it, but this is what actually got me excited about this many years ago, Eric, was that I was an athlete. I played baseball all growing up. I got a chance to play in college at Stanford. I got a chance to play professionally in the minor leagues with the Kansas City Royals. Unfortunately, I got injured before I ever made it to the major leagues. But I basically played baseball from the age of seven until I got hurt at 23. And then two years, three surgeries later at the age of 25, I was finally forced to retire. And as disappointing as that experience was personally, I had become fascinated, particularly by the time I got to college and was playing professionally, 
I was fascinated by the impact of team dynamics because even in sports, when talent really matters, the best players don't always make the best team and often, often don't. It's that combination of, yes, you have to have some talent and be good, but you have to figure out how to get all the egos and everything kind of organized in the right direction where guys are rooting for each other and you create that kind of chemistry where it's like, I want to win with this group. I want other people around me to be successful because if they win, I win, we win. And it's more of the exception than the rule. But I was like, wait a second, that's really interesting to me. And then when I got into the business world, I erroneously thought that had something to do with sports. Then I was like, oh, that's not a sports thing. That's a human thing. It's still hard to really unlock that chemistry of teams. But I was sort of obsessed with that. And that's what had me start my consulting business all those years ago was like, I want to figure that out. I want to learn that thing, what unlocks people individually and what unlocks teams collectively. Because it's not simply, it's not always the most talented people that are the most successful. And it's not always the most successful people that are the most fulfilled. And with teams, again, it's not always like you take a group of really, really talented individuals and throw them together. If they're not really willing to do the work to create a great team, they're probably actually going to struggle. And in fact, sometimes having too much talent, ironically, can make a team more problematic in terms of their ability to work together. And it's having the right mix of talent and then the right mix of personalities and really committing to, hey, we have to nurture this team. And it's not a one shot deal. It's not a, hey, let's read a book or let's do an offsite or let's, you know, no, it's like an ongoing thing. Same thing with our families, right? Our families are strong if we continue to nurture them. They're not if we just get annoyed, especially as our kids get older or we've been together with our spouse for a long time and go, oh, they're kind of getting on my nerves now. It's like, yeah, because we got to keep doing the work to keep it fresh and keep it healthy. I love the movie Moneyball. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I, I kept hearing you as you're talking about baseball and you're talking about teams. And I kept thinking, yeah, it's not about having the superstardom stacked, you know, bench. It's about yes. the mathematical, strategic underdog, in a sense, kind of uh, or overlooked, uh, yes. you know, roster in the dugout as that yes. movie goes on to to talk about and, and prove in so many different ways. And I love that movie because of that. Yeah. Well, and you know, I grew up in Oakland. I've been an Oakland yeah. A's fan literally since birth. I was born in 1974. The A's won three World Series titles in 72, 73, 74. Um, wanted to play for the Oakland A's. And, you know, Ricky Henderson was my favorite player as a kid growing up and then Mark McGuire. And anyway, so, but the thing about Moneyball that's fascinating, there's two aspects of it. Number one, and anybody who didn't read the book or see the movie, you know, Brad Pitt was in the movie and, but basically the idea behind it, and this was, you know, almost 20 years ago going on, the A's realized, oh, we don't have the payroll. We don't have the finances. We can't go buy the best players. And in baseball, it means a big, like the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers are able to spend an enormous amount of money, like 5X what, say, the Minnesota Twins and the Oakland A's are going to spend on their players. But they said there's some other aspects of success. And they started really kind of geeking out and bringing in these mathematicians and these statisticians and and now it's widespread all through baseball. I know sports in general, the analytics of sports have just exploded. And Moneyball was a book that Michael Lewis wrote following around the team, the Oakland A's in 2002, when they had this great season, but didn't have the best players. The thing, though, the other aspect of Moneyball, though, that I would say is important that sometimes gets overlooked in all of this obsession with analytics, not just in baseball, but other sports and also in business, is there's the mathematical statistical analysis of, hey, maybe we're undervaluing certain players or certain people or certain things and overvaluing other things. Let's really look at the data and have that dictate some of the decisions that we make and what we do, which is super valuable. What gets lost, though, in that 
is we also have to remember that the human element is really important. Mm. So we can't do one without the other. And in the old school way, just using baseball as an example, and this is in life too, but it's like, you'd have the old scout that'd be like, I don't need to look at the radar gun. I don't need to look at any numbers. I can tell, I can spot him. He, that kid can play. That kid's got heart. And it's like, there was no <clears throat> statistical analysis behind that. And it was like, he just looked the part, right? And then you get all the statisticians that come in and say, wait a second, let's break this down and really look at the numbers. <clears throat> and what the truth is, you got to bring both of those things together because you don't win baseball games or you don't succeed on paper. You do need to have some sense of understanding of, hey, there's, you know, like in basketball, take another example. Basketball fundamentally changed about 10 years ago when they all of a sudden realized, hey, you know what? Three points is more than two points. <laughs> Wow, that was like yeah. mind blowing. And if yeah. you 33% from three point land is the same as 50% from taking a two point shot. If you can get some players on your team who can shoot, let's say, I don't know, 38% or 40% or even 42% from three, you're going to score more points than even 50% from the field is a really good shooting percentage for most players in the NBA. But if they're shooting mostly two pointers and then you get somebody like Steph Curry, who happens to be my favorite, favorite player who's like the greatest shooter of all time who can shoot from 30 feet and is, you know, his three point percentage is in the forties. All of a sudden it's like, Oh my goodness, we can have a six foot three guard who weighs 185 pounds change the game in basketball. But it was a combination of his skill, the statistical analysis. But I would also argue again, I'm totally geeking out on sports. And anybody <laughs> who's rolling their eyes now, but what makes Steph Curry and the golden state warriors so good is not the numbers. It's that Steph Curry was, and now again is, the best player on that team. And guess what? He's the best teammate on that team. Mm, see, and that's so, so even outside of being in a, an employee position or a management position, there's that third role of being a good teammate that I'm glad you yes. brought that up because that is one of the components, but not the only component. I mean, again, there's those three roles. There's, there's, uh, you know, management, there's, mm -hmm. uh, let's just call it subordinate as if you're quote an employee, which right. a lot of people would say maybe that's where they would fall, but they yep. also then have one other role, which is teammate. And yes. that is, um, you know, I, I want to dive into the four pillars that are yep. in uh, the book, but I want to call it out one more time is, you know, the last book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work. Again, I, I kind of made a little bit of a semi joke that it feels almost like it's a command. OK, go ahead. Bring your whole self to work. And even right. as a leader, even as a manager, if you were to say, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy copies of this book, which I know you would personally love and hand it out to my entire team uh, in my entire organization and then command everyone bring their whole self to work. The problem there is, is if, if that person doesn't then follow through on yes. number five in that book, then yep. this book is worthless. The new one. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, there's a commitment to. Right. And it is a little bit it's, of a command. It's permission. It's, in other it's words, permission. it's permission yeah, you have, because you, you can ask people to come do it. But if you don't give them the permission and ability to do it, then you're setting everybody up for failure. Absolutely. It's also modeling by leaders. I mean, I will often say when I'm talking to leaders at various levels inside of organizations of different sizes, look, if you want people to bring their whole selves to work and you're not willing to do that, it's not impossible for them to. It's just you make it 10 times harder. Yes. Right. I mean, it's the it's the, the, the manager, of the boss who says, I have an open door policy. You can say anything to me or, you know, please ask for help or admit when you don't know something. But then they never do that. Or you do go in to the open door policy. And now, you know, you say, hey, I have some feedback and you give them the feedback and they get super upset or they use it against you. And you're like, yeah, actually, they didn't really mean it. They just said it because it sounds good. And so that's tricky. Right. And a lot of this stuff, it's not cut and dried. And so, you know, ultimately, 
there's a really simple distinction that I make when I'm talking to teams about this, the distinction between our role and our job. So the role has to do with, right, where do I fit in the hierarchy of the organization? What's my title? What's my responsibility? And again, even in a very small company, there's obviously different roles. Someone owns the company, someone runs the company, then people work for that person. In a really big organization, there's a lot of hierarchy and it matters if you're, am I a manager or a senior manager or a director or a senior director or, you know, all the way up to like executive vice president to the C-suite. Those things matter a lot. And I say to people, look, our roles most of us are proud of the roles that we play in life. You know, again, professionally, it's like what's on your LinkedIn profile or what's on your emails in your email signature. However, that's not your job. What great teams understand is that every single person on the team has the same job. And again, I think of this in a sports context, but it's true in business for sure. Your job is to help the team win. That's your job, plain and simple. And if people put their roles above their jobs, again, just think of it in sports. I'm going to score 30 points whether we win or not. Right. In school, it's like I'm going to do I'm going to get an A on this thing or I'm going to do my part of the group project, whatever. I don't care about the rest of them. You know, that doesn't work because then the project is not successful. We're then collectively not successful. But I worked really hard and did my thing. Well, OK, but you also have to part of your job. If helping the team win is not simply just showing up and bringing your whole self to work. That's part of it. Not just producing results. That's part of it. Not just executing on what's on your plate and doing the things you're supposed to do. It's also being a good teammate and paying attention to what does the team need in order for us to win. And some and that changes, by the way, in this crazy pandemic virtual world that we're in right now. What helps the team win is actually quite different than probably what it was six months ago and probably what it will be six months from now. So again, can I show up in every moment and say, you know, again, I think about this in sports, some nights, what it takes. I, I was a pitcher in baseball. I didn't pitch every game. If I was a starting pitcher, I pitched once every five days. If I was a relief pitcher, I sat down there until the game dictated that they were going to bring me in. So my job to help the team win many nights was literally to be a cheerleader. Mm. And to like pay attention to the game and pump my guys up or share an idea that I have. I'm watching what's happening. If I'm going to start the next night or I started the night before as a pitcher, come up to the guy who's pitching that night, not disrupt him and interrupt him, but say, hey, man, last night when I was pitching to the guy, the shortstop who's, you know, been on fire here when I got him out, here was the thing that I did. Oh, now I just help my guy. He's going to go out. And then that guy comes up in a big spot two innings later and he throws a pitch low and away. And the guy hits a ground ball to second base. It turns into a double play. He can come back in and say, hey, Robbins, man, thanks for that tip. It really worked, right? I just helped the team win, even though what is my job that night or what's, what's my role is to sit there and spit sunflower seeds on the <laughs> bench. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So again, if you think of yourself as I am a member of this team and my job is to help the team win, but that's predicated on this notion that we have to actually care about what we're doing and care about each other. And remember, as and I know it's corny. The funny thing about the title of my book, We're All in This Together, my agent, my editor, and everyone involved in the project of this book, they were all on board for the book. None of them wanted the title. They said, it's too corny. It's too soft. It's too cheesy. We don't understand what it means. And I kept saying that we wanted to call, they wanted to call it the keys to creating a championship team, which is literally the the title of that fifth pillar in bring your whole self to work. It's the, I've been giving a speech and leading a workshop with that title for years. And I said to them, I don't dislike that title. It's important. I said, but this book is going to be called, we're all in this together. And they kept asking me why. And I sort of dug my heels in and I said, well, because what I know about great teams is that whether things are going great or they're going terrible, there is a sense and an understanding that we don't all necessarily have to be best friends we don't all have to have the same values. We don't all have to hang out after work. 
But we have to understand that if we're going to be successful, we got to be all in and we got to be all in with each other, not just on the work and the outcome, but actually care about and be committed to each other. And what's ironic in some ways, Eric, is like I wrote this book last year. I knew it was coming out in 2020 in the spring. Of course, I had no idea it was going to come out in the midst of what we've been dealing with. And so many people have been using this phrase Mm. in response to what's going on, almost to the point where it's become overused. And now people are arguing, well, we're not really all in this together. But part of why we're saying that and people have been saying that so much is because I think we know intuitively when faced with a challenge or when faced with a big obstacle or when faced with a big goal or whatever it is, I can't do this thing myself. In fact, I'm going to need every single person around me and we're all going to have to lock arms metaphorically and figure out how the heck we're going to get through this thing or accomplish this thing together. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews to deep dives into all things productivity from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and am intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X dot com to learn more. We're going to take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsor for making this episode possible. It's Miro. And ironically, Miro is something that in this episode we're talking about teams. I use Miro with my team. Miro is an online whiteboard that can bring your team together in any place, in any time. And you can use it for all sorts of things like making mock-ups, organizing your files, brainstorming. You can manage complex projects with this or drill down in and get into the specific details. And you can add your docs, your sticky notes, your spreadsheets directly into Miro. So you've always got that one place where everyone can go to have a real-time collaboration hub. And not only that, it integrates with the programs you may already be using like Dropbox or Google Drive or Slack. And you can even video chat with your team without ever having to leave Miro. These are all just some of the reasons that 5 million users worldwide, including myself and my team, 
Trust Miro to help their teams work more efficiently. And you can start collaborating for free when you sign up for an account at Miro.com slash beyond. That's M-I-R-O dot com slash beyond to sign up for a free account with unlimited team members. Miro.com slash beyond. We should jump in and yeah. uh, talk about these four pillars because I really like where you're going here. I feel like ultimately this is not easy stuff to do. I think mm-hmm. it can be done. I think it's not impossible by any means. I've right. seen it happen and that's hopeful. Well, yeah. And the first of the four pillars is to create what we call psychological safety, which Eric, basically psychological safety is group trust. So trust is more of a one-to-one phenomenon, like you and I trust each other or we don't, right? And we can rebuild the trust, we can establish it, we can deepen it, it can be strong, it can be not so strong. Group trust or psychological safety is how how much trust is exists within the team. Like, meaning, is the team, is the group safe enough for what? For me to disagree with someone else, for me to speak up, for me to have, you know, be the dissenting voice on something, for me to... We have a crazy idea for me to take a risk and fall flat on my face and and fail. Not that I want to, but knowing all of those things can happen within a team that has psychological safety. And I know that I'm not going to get shamed. I'm not going to get ridiculed. I'm not going to get kicked out of the group. I mean, it doesn't mean there's not accountability, right? If I really do something horrible or I make some horrendous mistake or I do something incredibly offensive, like, you know, hey, man, you got to go. Like, that's not okay. But psychological safety means the team is safe. And what we know about this, they did a study at, at Google a few years back. And Google's a really interesting company that I've had a chance to partner with for the last decade. And they they spend a lot of time kind of like in the money ball way, like talk about analytics and statistics and data and really crunching numbers of things to try to optimize the success of their business, which is one of the many reasons they've grown and become so successful. They've actually also implemented this on the people side and have been doing that for a long time. And in the same way that the Oakland A's sort of said, hey, we can sort of look at all these analytics and figure out how to be successful. Google was one of the first companies, not the first or the only, but to say, hey, there's a bunch of data and analytics we can look at in terms of some of these softer things on the people side that can really impact the way that we lead, the way that we hire, the way that we think about culture. And they did a study a few years back that got a lot of attention called Project Aristotle. And they spent three years, they brought in a bunch of researchers, a bunch of scientists, and they were trying to solve for something that, you know, made sense that, hey, what what are the conditions necessary for teams to create high performance? Because like every other company, they have some teams that do incredibly well, and they have some teams that do okay, and they have some that struggle. And with as much energy and effort and resources they were putting into trying to hire the right people and really set them up for success, they were still struggling on the team level of figuring out how do you unlock the performance of teams. After three years of studying this, they came back with some findings. And the number one by far most important component for teams to thrive was psychological safety. And what was interesting about it when the findings came out, a lot of us, myself included, didn't really know what the heck psychological safety was. And I remember talking to Karen May, who was the head of learning and development at Google at the time, and I said, were you surprised by any of the findings and particularly this thing around psychological safety. She said, you know, I didn't know what that meant. Like then I learned and understood, Oh, okay. This sense of group trust, (laughs) she goes. And then once I realized what it was, it didn't surprise me that it was important. What did surprise me was how important it was. Like basically if a team has it, they have a chance to succeed. If they don't almost no chance. And so what drives psychological safety more than almost anything is something that you have been bringing up a couple different times throughout our conversation, Eric, which is, How does the leader show up and what tone does he or she set? 
And then ultimately, how does the team respond and engage with each other? And so the driver of psychological safety is bringing your whole self to work, is authenticity and vulnerability. So that's a lot of what I focus on in that particular pillar. And the more willing we are to show up and be authentic and be real and really bring our whole selves, especially as leaders, but for everybody, that creates more of that psychological safety. So psychological safety, from what I hear you saying, is it's way more than just creating a safe space it's mm-hmm. it's it's this mutual trust it's this magnified yep. trust in a way it's not just i trust you and you trust me it's that i trust each and every one of you in this whole team and you trust me but then how does that play out practically what kind of positive side effects of that happening uh how does that play out well part of it is it's actually less about the individual. So the truth is you can have psychological safety on a team where not every one of the people on the team, I may not trust you personally, like you and I don't have a really Mm. strong trusting relationship. It'd be nice if we do. It's not necessary. What we know is the team, the group norms are such like, so the, the, the psychological safety, the, the leading expert in the world who's been studying this for a couple of decades is a professor at Harvard business school named Amy Edmondson. And what Amy says, and I had had a chance to interview her on my podcast last year, and she said, actually, ironically, the thing you just said about safe space, she goes, I wish when we had sort of coined this phrase, psychological safety, we called it something different. She said, because I think in our modern world today, people hear it like safe space, meaning like, oh, we can't argue, we can't disagree, we can't challenge each other, we can't call each other out. She said, in fact, the opposite is true. Psychologically safe teams really challenge and push each other. But what we know is that it's okay. Risk taking is fine. Failure is okay. Differences of opinion. So like the leader modeling and saying, you know what? I don't know how this is going to go, or I'm really going to need your help, or I really screwed that up. Right. Or again, think about the environment we've been in for the last few months. It's like, hey, we've never been here before, which is true. We don't know how the heck this is going to turn out. (laughs) This is going to require all of us. I'm going to need your input. I'm going to need to know when things are working and not working. I'm going to tell you when I've got something I think I figured out and when I screwed something up. So it starts to play out. It's that deeper level of authenticity. And then what becomes available, right? Again, if we know, hey, you can make a mistake and not only are you not ridiculed for the mistake, there's some sense of even celebrating the effort. I think back to my high school basketball coach, who was one of my favorite coaches I ever played for, Coach Lippy. He was all about effort and hustle. And so like diving on the floor and like sprinting up and down and going until you couldn't go anymore, he would get so upset with us when we would make mistakes and then hang our head. And I remember he'd take guys out of the game and I'd turn the ball over. We were playing in the other team's gym. I'm a junior in high school and the best player for the other team steals the ball from me at half court. And I look and go, oh gosh, and he's got a breakaway and he's a big kid who could dunk and he'd already dunked in the game. And I know exactly what he's going to go do. He's going to dunk on the other end. But Coach Lippy's yelling at me and I'd been trained well enough. I turned around, I try to get back on defense. Not only does the kid dunk, I foul him and I fall down in a heap and the whole gym goes crazy. And it's like a super low moment for me as an athlete, as a 17 year old high school junior who just got dunked on in the other team's gym. And I look over and Coach Lippy is jumping up and down, pointing at me and saying, way to hustle back on defense, Robbins. Because what he knew was I had failed, but what he wanted us to do was make sure we were putting 100% effort because we could control the effort. We couldn't always control the outcome. Mm. So psychologically safe teams are such. Now, was I embarrassed that I got dunked on? Of course I was. But I knew that my coach and my teammates, they weren't mad at me and I wasn't shamed and ridiculed and then taken out of the game and made an example of and then made fun of in the film session when we watched it. Actually, when we watched the film of that, as much as everyone had a good laugh, including me from what happened, Coach Lippy was able to say, look, 
That's what you do when you turn the ball over at half court. You get back on defense, you hustle, you try to stop him. You don't just sit there and let him get a breakaway dunk. That's not the way we play. The thing that I uh, agree with, with uh, I forget who it was, you said it was when you, when the, you know, psychological safety. Uh, oh, this, Amy, Amy Edmondson. Yeah. yeah. When she was coining that or when, when she was saying what she said about how, man, I wish we'd come up with a different way of saying this because people automatically go to safe space and yep. think about. And I think then the misconception is, is people think of a safe space as being yep. a conflict free zone, which exactly. is completely false. And we'll get to that actually in pillar three. So I won't even bring it up, but uh, I wanted to kind of make mention of that real quick. But uh, let's pivot real quick and say, let's talk about number two. um, Yes. Which is a focus on inclusion and belonging. And a lot of people um, know what inclusion is. And, uh, you know, I see I see pillar two as kind of taking pillar one even further. It's like doubling down on it in a sense. Absolutely. Because because so one of the things that happened in the last few years for me and my own work So traveling around the country talking about bringing your whole self to work, many people came to me and said very earnestly, very honestly, hey, Mike, that's great for you to say that, um, but you're white, you're straight, you're male, you have all of these privileges that make it easier for you to bring your whole self to work. And I, at first I was like, got a little defensive or got a little confused and we started to have deeper conversations about some of this. And as again, for a number of reasons, starting to realize, oh, you know what? Not everybody has the same experience, which of course I know that we all know that rationally, but to realize, oh, if we're going to create a team that's psychologically safe, if we're going to encourage people to bring their whole selves to work, if we're going to say, really commit yourself to this, show up fully authentically, it's important to acknowledge Again, if I'm the CEO of the company, do I have more pressure on me than others? Probably. But I also have more freedom and permission to like say and do what I want to some degree. If I'm the manager of the team versus I just started three weeks ago, if I'm part of the dominant group, whatever the dominant group may be, depending on, you know, all of these factors. Oh, if I'm more unique or more different based on my background or my identity. Therefore, again, not even from a political perspective or from a social perspective, although it it impacts those levels, Mm -hmm. from a sheer performance perspective, what we know is that diverse teams and teams that really allow people to feel included perform better than teams that don't. If we all look the same and or if we don't all look the same, but there's a way we're all supposed to act and with the way we're all supposed to look and the way we're all supposed to talk, what we know, especially in today's modern world, you know, people can't bring their whole selves. They can't be as creative and innovative and effective. And guess what? We also don't resonate and reflect or connect with whoever the customer base is we're trying to connect with. But what I learned as I started to study this a little bit more, Eric, that was really interesting is that ultimately what we're now finding with all of these initiatives around diversity and inclusion, some of them are working and making a lot of progress. Others of them, as I started to dig more deeply, a lot of people who look like me look like you, I was talking to them about this and saying, you know what, I don't actually feel included in any of the inclusion stuff because it doesn't seem, you know, and I don't know how to engage. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And now I'm worried and I'm walking on eggshells and it's like, okay, whoa, wait a minute. Now we're creating some other aspects or challenges related to this. And it's like, whoa, what is this really about? Ultimately, while there's layers to it, what it's really about is creating a sense where people feel like they belong. And what we know is that belonging sits on Maslow's hierarchy of needs in that third position. The first one is physiological needs. The second level is safety needs. The third level is belonging needs. We have a need, a fundamental need. No matter what we look like, no matter where we're from, no matter what our background is, we have a fundamental human need to belong. 
Then it's esteem is the fourth one. And the fifth one is what he calls self-actualization. But that need, that fundamental human need to belong, if we can create a sense within our team and ultimately within the organization that everyone belongs here. Now, look, of course, it's important to acknowledge that we're all different. And again, if you've been here for 30 years or it's your company and I started, you know, a month ago, we have different levels of seniority. We have different levels of skill. And if, you know, if, if I'm a man and you're a woman, if I'm, you know, 60 years old and you're 22 years old, I mean, those are all differences, of course. But can you create that sense back to the Steph Curry analogy? If Steph as the best player is also the best teammate, he sets the tone that says everybody's valuable. Everybody's important on this team. We all belong. We're going to win or lose as a team. That's really important. And for a lot of reasons, as I'm sure most everyone listening to me talk about this right now, that's really difficult to talk about, to engage with, and to move the needle on. But if we have that psychological safety, then you're right. Can we double down and really go deeper into how do we make sure this team and this environment is as inclusive as possible and that everyone really feels like they belong? And are we open to looking at places where maybe that's not the case, not from a place of shame or judgment or guilt or someone's wrong and screwed up, but more from a place of how do we get better and how do we move towards that ideal of belonging? Yeah, I can't help but think as we're talking about this that one of the obvious ways that this comes into play in terms of covering over weaknesses is that you don't leave yourself unintentionally open to uh, an Achilles heel of some sort because you've completely mm. forgotten about this or that or whatever. It's yep. it, We've all been in that place where we've been in that meeting. And then yep. after the fact, we realize, oh, if so-and-so had been in there, they would have pointed out that we didn't yes. think about this. And that would yes. have saved all of us big headaches down the road. Totally. And look, the thing is, we all have blind spots. We all have biases. It's just the nature of being human. I see the world the way I see the world. You see the world the way you see. Everyone sees the world the way they see the world. So part of the benefit of having as much diversity involved in our teams and in the environments and in the conversations is we get multiple perspectives. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even think of that. We didn't even think of that. You know, I mean, I think of something really tactical and practical companies that grow and then they have multiple offices in different locations around the country or around the world. Right. What's it like for the people in the office? You know, the company's based in like where I live in San Francisco, let's say. What's it like for the people in Chicago? What's it like for the people in St. Louis or in New York or Boston or wherever? What's it like for the people in Europe or in Asia or in India? I don't know. I've never been there. I don't know. What's, I mean, just something practical like, hey, you know what? Every time we meet collectively, it's at this time and it's like super late or super early or it's confusing or, you know what I mean? Again, now everyone's working virtually in this moment, but in, in normal circumstances, you have people sort of in the office, in the headquarters, and then you have people sort of in satellite offices or working from home. And then the people that are out by themselves often feel disconnected. Even if we use great technology and we're all on Skype or Zoom or whatever, it's different than being in the, in the room where the decisions are being made. So trying to have some understanding and some empathy again on both sides of that equation Hey, what can the people in the field do to engage more with the folks that are, you know, in the home office? And what can the people in the home office do to engage people out in the field more and try to have some empathy and understanding for their different perspectives? Yeah. And and again, that my example, I'm downplaying so much the importance of the the, you know, one of the words we aren't using here is diversity, but mm-hmm. that you know, it fits in this discussion for sure. For sure. And especially in the inclusion and uh I, and I definitely like that you gave the like, well there can be kind of a backlash to the inclusion where you've got the, then the yeah. people that were already quote there uh yep. or however you want to put that. I'm kind of walking on eggshells a little bit 
vocally yeah. here, but you get that's but that's what ends up happening is people right. then feel like that's what is going to happen. And again, then that you know, in, in other words, focusing in on pillar two, you can undercut some of your pillar one psychological safety. Absolutely. For sure. Because and look, and here's the reality. I mean, I'll just speak for this as a man, all right, or as a as a straight white person, right? Now, there are things that I don't understand about what it's like to be female or what it's like to be of a different race or a different sexual orientation, right? Like that's just obvious to me. However, then what happens is, oh my goodness, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. I'm trying, you know, I'm either unaware or let's say I am aware, but it's like, gosh, now I'm walking on eggshells because I don't want to offend someone. I don't want someone to think I'm sexist or racist or homophobic because I'm not. But you know what? I don't know. This is touchy. So what do we tend to do? We just don't talk about it. And one of the things, Brene Brown said this in her Netflix special that came out last year. She said, not wanting to talk about issues of diversity and equity and inclusion because they make you uncomfortable is the definition of privilege. Mm, man. Right? Because like, hey, I don't want to go there because like <laughs> it's awkward or I might feel bad or someone might judge me or like, and I get that it is awkward and people judge us and it is, unco- I get all that. I know that personal experience. However, Imagine what it's like to be a member of a group where you have to constantly try to advocate for yourself and figure things out as like, is that probably not more awkward and uncomfortable than, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing that might offend the person from that group. And this comes back to where if we're all in this together, the truth of the matter is, I don't know what your experience is like, especially if you're different than me. However, we're all on this team together. We're all in this company together. We're all on this planet together without getting too, again, sort of theoretical or, or, or cliched about it. How are we going to navigate some of this challenge and some of this terrain together? And if we are sitting on the same side of the table metaphorically, hey, teach me, or what can I do? What can I learn? What can I do different? How can I be better at this? As opposed to defending ourselves against, oh, I don't want to be labeled that way or thought of that way or whatever, then like, okay, then just don't be that way. Right. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do over the course of my life, and I'm not saying this in some holier than thou way, like I got as many blind spots as anybody else, but I'm curious and fascinated by people who are different than me. And I'm always trying to learn, like, what's it like there? What do do you, how do you see this? Or what's your experience like? Because the more I learn about their experience, not only do I connect more with them, that gives me more insight and info, if you will, for when I get to deal with and interact with other people. And the truth of the matter is the way the world is evolving and will continue to evolve our cultural intelligence is going to be an even more important aspect of our success or failure as we move further into the 21st century. It's just the way of the world. Like there's no getting around that. And you might end up being, I work in an environment or I'm in a situation where, Hey, most people kind of look like me and we all kind of have a lot of things in common. Like that's going to be more the exception than the rule and being able to be comfortable with lots and lots of different types of people and feel like I can be myself and I can encourage other people to be themselves, not having to walk on eggshells. It actually just benefits everybody. Well, in some of these conversations, though, I know this is not exactly how you mean it, are some of those sweaty palmed conversations in Pillar 3. Exactly. So Pillar 3 is what I call, you know, embrace sweaty palm conversations. This comes from a conversation I had with a mentor years ago who said to me, Mike, you know what stands between you and the kind of relationships you really want to have with people? I said, what's that? He said, it's probably a 10 minute sweaty palm conversation you're too afraid to have. And so when you think about these things, yes, it can be around issues of diversity and inclusion and belonging for sure. Those are often sweaty palm conversations, but it also can simply just be a conflict, a disagreement, a, Hey, you know what? I don't agree or I don't see it that way. It can also be feedback. And so teams that are really strong and have a strong culture, ultimately what we do going back to psychological safety, you create a norm as a group. It's safe in this group for us to disagree with each other. 
It's safe in this group for us to call each other out respectfully. It's safe in this group to say, I disagree with that or I want to challenge you on that. It's safe in this group to say, hey, you know what? I have some feedback. Can I share my feedback with you? Like we make that safe. And the way you make it safe is not just by saying it. It's by modeling it. It's by, right? If the, if the, if the leader says, tell me what you really think or I really want to know what people think, or let's really talk about this. But then I see this happen all the time. Then a little bit of a debate starts or it gets a little heated. And then the leader gets uncomfortable with the conflict. So they shut it down. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about this later. I can't tell you how many times I go into work with the team, Eric, and I'll interview everyone on the team, especially like a senior leadership team. This is like reporting to the CEO and they'll say, Oh, he can't, or she can't handle it when it gets intense. <laughs> or Right. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? Oh, they're very conflict avoidant or they're always wanting to shut it down. And then we have 14 conversations after the meeting and all the triangulation that happens and everyone trying to process what happened instead of just talking about it as a group when it comes up. And look, those conversations are not fun. They're not easy. They get messy. Sometimes they, you know, exacerbate problems before they get better. But the more capacity we have individually and collectively to say, you know what, part of being a great team is mixing it up with each other. When I work with a team and they say, oh, we all, everyone gets along great. We never have any conflict. I always say, someone's lying if that's the case, because you can't get a group of talented, smart, passionate people who really care about what they're doing, especially if there's any level of diversity in the group and not have people disagree and see things differently. Like, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, that's a really good thing. The hard part is being able to navigate those sweaty palm conversations. Well, and again, this is one of those things that ties back into psychological safety and trust, which is yep. that we're going to not just all be on the same team or all be in this together, that we're going to get through this, quote, conflict together, this right. discussion about what it is that we're really here for and what's the best way to do it. Totally. Well, look, in the, uh, for me personally, I mean, this is where some of my own personal bias comes in. When I'm on a team or in a relationship, the worst thing you can do, like if you want to really, really irritate me, is just stop talking to me, disengage with me, right? And when teams, when people just shut down, and look, I'm not saying, look, sometimes someone's really rude or disrespectful. It's okay to say enough or stop or I don't want to have that conversation with you. But more often than not, we, we disengage from the difficult conversation because it's uncomfortable, because our feelings get hurt, because it gets a little intense or emotional and we're not really sure how to handle it. But what I love and what builds the most trust one-on-one -on -one and the most psychological safety is, by the way, we can engage in a conflict, we can have an issue, we can have a problem, we can all lean in, even if it's a little painful and uncomfortable, work through it, sort of sit in the fire together and then get to the other side of it. And then we go, not only did we just resolve that issue or that conflict and whatever good ideas or new ideas or whatever came out of it, but we've also now just trained ourselves and built the muscle, you know what? This team is really friggin' strong. We can bang up into each other, work through it and get out the other side. Because guess what? This is not the last time we're going to have to do that. And if we're not sure that we can do that with each other, now we're all walking on eggshells and we're not going to engage in the same way. And that's why that's what makes then pillar four fundamental, which is like caring about and challenging each other is the fourth pillar. And this is a, a combination of both of those things simultaneously. And most of us as individuals, most teams I work with kind of err on one side or the other. And in today's world, it's more on the care, at least acting like we care, whether we authentically do or not, meaning we're nice to each other. We're pleasant to each other. We right. And, and again, if we're over-indexed on caring. And I'm, and there's, it's hard to over-care on people, but if that's where we're stronger, but we're not that good at challenging each other, what we create is an environment where people feel warm and fuzzy. 
Although it usually ends up being that the care starts to be more inauthentic and like we're being nice versus kind. But if there's more care and not a lot of challenge, hey, it feels great, but we don't push each other. We don't challenge each other to be our best. If we're over-indexed on the challenge side, like we really push each other, we hold each other accountable, we get up in each other's face, we demand excellence, then people will produce results at least initially, but there's not a lot of psychological safety. It's hard to really relax. It's hard to really trust and it's not sustainable. People get burnt out. People get defensive. So what we want to do is do both of those things at the same time. And the caring has to come first. We have to establish that we care about each other and keep reiterating and reinforcing the care so that we're constantly nurturing each other in our relationships and the team. But the challenging, which involves sweaty palm conversations, which is, you know, we got to have some sense of belonging. We also got to have some psychological safety means I push you to be your best. You push me to be our best. We all push each other to be our absolute best, which is a little uncomfortable because the truth is, if I'm really honest in a lot of cases, I'd rather say, hey, man, I won't call you on yours if you don't call me on mine right. so that we're comfortable. But the truth is, we all know if we do that, we're not going to have the best team and we're not going to ultimately produce our best results. Man, there's so much more we could dive into, but <laughs> this is a great start and uh, I think people are going to get something out of this and I know they'll get something out of the book. I'd love for you, Mike, to point people to where you they can find out more and even dive in deeper to find out if this is right for them, which I mean, come on, it is. Let's go. <laughs> well, the best place to do that. We have a page on our site. It's at Mike-Robbins.com forward slash together. And that's got more info about the book, but there's also some free bonus material that folks can get when they order the book from there. There's a webinar. There's a six part audio series that I created as a companion to the book. And there's some action guides, whether you're a team leader or a team member or for your whole team. So there's a bunch of free resources there at Mike-Robbins.com awesome. forward slash together. Awesome. And I will also link up to your podcast where you talk about these type of issues and, <laughs> you know, uh, and talk with other other experts about this same stuff uh, yep. over on the We're All In This Together uh, podcast. Yeah. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the work that you do. And it's uh, an honor to chat with you and everybody listening. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Mike Robbins, and I hope that you found something in here for yourself to use to work better with your team or to take back to your team and talk over with them and learn how to create a better team or work better as a team, whether that's remotely, whether that's in person, small or a large team. I hope that you found something that's going to help you. If you did, would you do me the favor of sharing this episode with somebody you know needs to hear it? Maybe it's with your whole team. You can just hit the share button there in your podcast player app of choice or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com and hit the share button there as well. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next episode. <laughs>